Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. On the next day, when the crowd found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose mother and father we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, You have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The word of the Lord. 
There was a time before COVID when I was moderately social, by which I mean I would go and meet people even if I didn't have to. Um, occasionally, in meeting somebody new, pre-COVID, back when that social muscle was still a part of my flexing, um, I would meet somebody, and when I got home, I would say, yeah, I don't think we're going to be friends with that person. And what I mean when I say I don't think I'm going to be friends with that person, I don't mean like they're a horrible person or, or anything of that nature. It was usually because our conversation over 30 minutes or two hours was a constant misconnection. It, it was... So when I talk to somebody new, or when I'm talking to almost anybody, I will uh, actively listen with nodding and even Deadwood phrases like, yeah, yeah. So in certain instances, somebody would read that literally, and so they're saying, you know, telling me about some restaurant they've been to or some city, and I'm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they say, oh, you've been to that restaurant in Sioux Falls as well? Well, no. I'm just nodding along. I'm trying to be accommodating and friendly, make it easy for you to talk about these things. And, and then, you know, occasionally I would try to add in a phrase like, oh, that's like, and I would describe my own situation similar to what they had just described, at which point they would say something like, no, it wasn't like that at all. So when you're meeting somebody new and they're constantly kind of giving you the exacting and you're not an exacting person, you just know, hey, he's a perfectly nice person, but, but we just have this constant misunderstanding, and it's just difficult to have these conversations, even if it's just a normal one. Jesus lived his entire life walking around Palestine being misunderstood by people. The things that he was saying, they would read a different way. It was like they were different, on a different page altogether. Nearly everyone did this because they had preconceived notions about who God is, how God acts in the world, and who the Messiah was, and what it meant for their lives. And so they were constantly missing out on what Jesus was trying to say, or when they would hear it, they would read it in the wrong way. Today we looked at the message that Jesus gave after the feeding of the 5,000. That's one of the signs, the miracles that Jesus did, that is recorded in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the feeding of the 5,000, which is underscoring the point that it is important. It's important for understanding who Jesus is as he is revealing himself to the world. In John chapter 6, the gospel writer John, who was the latest gospel writer to write about 90 to 100 AD, after Matthew, Mark, and Luke had written theirs, John says, let me tell you what Jesus said the day after he fed the 5,000, which gave the full explanation. And yet, as he's doing so, the next day in Capernaum, nearly everyone misses out on what he is saying. So the story of the feeding of the 5,000 may be completely familiar for a lot of you, but for some of you, you've never heard of it. What happened was this. Jesus had been teaching and doing miracles for some time. He got in a boat with his disciples and went to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, where they were in a remote region without any cities or villages nearby. Thousands of people joined them. In fact, 5,000 men, which probably meant 10 to 15,000 total people, joined them out in the middle of nowhere. And as the people are there, Jesus says to his disciples, well, what are we going to do? Who's going to feed them? Philip says, Lord, we'd have to rob a bank and still wouldn't have enough money to feed these people. And then Andrew says something that I don't know if it's being a little cheeky or if he means it earnestly. He goes like, well, there's a boy over here with a bag with some bread and fish in it. Like, I could beat that kid up, we could take his lunchbox. Jesus is like, yeah, 
go steal that kid's bread. Have people sit down. He begins to break the five loaves and the two fish and pass them out. And there was more than enough for everybody, and it was a miracle. And everyone realized what was happening here. Now, in order to understand the significance of what was happening, what Jesus was doing and how it was being interpreted by the people who saw the feeding of the 5,000, we have to understand the importance of the Exodus, the Exodus story in Israel's self-understanding, their view of who God was, and their calling and vocation in the world. So we get from this passage that the time that this was happening was in the season of Passover, which was part of the Exodus. The Exodus narrative is the time when Israel was enslaved in Egypt and God delivered them by his mighty hand through the prophet Moses, bringing judgment through the plagues on the Egyptians and delivering his people out through the blood of the lamb on the Passover night and through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where he led them, provided for them, and protected them for 40 years, providing bread called manna water from a rock, guiding them as their God. This was the identity-forming event in Israel's history that they went back to again and again and again. It defined who they were and all of their aspirations. And it was why when they went into exile in Babylon, about 700 BC, 500 BC, and in the years after that, they were in such disorientation because their identity as God's rescued people seemed to be in question. At this point, Rome is over them, and they're longing for a new exodus when God would send his prophet, bring his miracles, and deliver them from the hand of their enemies. It's the Passover season we get when this happens. Now, you guys know, if you're part of a Christmas traditions, that there's a certain spirit in the air in the Christmas season in the West. And it's that singing songs and getting together with people and anticipating Christmas. And thoughts of many people, even if they're not very religious, are turned towards religious-y things because they're remembering the birth of Christ, maybe, along with some guy in a red suit. And so that's in their minds for all people. And this was especially true in that first century period where what was in their minds in the weeks leading up to Passover was the exodus and the longing for a new Moses, for miracles to deliver them, for God to intervene. So here they are, a prophet who's done amazing things, gathers people in the wilderness, and provides bread out of nowhere. The new exodus is happening is what they think. And in verse 14, we read that after this happened, the people said, this is indeed the prophet, meaning Moses, it's referring back to Exodus 18, this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. And then they tried to make him king by force. They wanted him to be the sort of king who would overthrow the Romans, to take over by force and strike them down with his mighty hand. And Jesus has to evade the people and escape. He is not that sort of king. So he escapes And the disciples go to another place, and then the next day they end up in Capernaum, which is the city that he did most of his work in. And it happens to be the the Sabbath day, a Saturday, and Jesus is in the synagogue. And we read that the people found out that he was there. The people that were out there found out that he was there in the synagogue, that he was there in Capernaum. And they they tried to find out about it, like, so so what's happening next? And 
Jesus realizes why they're following him. We read this in verse 26 and 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs revealing who I am, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For in him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, you're seeking me because you have in your head a preconceived notion on what God is going to do when he intervenes, when he shows up. You have it in your head that this is, there's a certain way God has to act, and he's got to like provide food for all of us. There'll be a chicken in every pot every morning. When God comes, it'll be that sort of thing. They had this lens through which they were viewing Jesus. And it was a lens by which they had these preconceived notions about what the Christ, the Messiah, was supposed to be, about the new exodus and the coming kingdom of God, and about the very nature of God himself. You know, I think that we do the same sort of thing. We approach Jesus, we approach Christianity with a lens of preconceived notions on who God must be, how he must act, and he must fit within our framework of understanding. The challenge of Jesus which the people saw here, which we still see today, is that he calls us to follow him, which means to trust him and know him on his terms, on his own terms. And this inevitably leads to conflict with Christ in each of us because he will push against, he will pull the rug out from under, and he will press on what we want him to be or the way we think things should be. And when he doesn't match, when what he's teaching doesn't fit what we believe or think should be, it's too much. The conversation keeps going on between Jesus and these people who had seen the miracles that he had done. And they begin to ask questions about him because um, they're, they're looking for bread and and. He's trying to say, look, I'm something more than just somebody who's going to provide you a a free happy meal. And they say, well, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answers them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. Of course, he's talking about himself. Then they go on to say, what sign will you give? You know, and they say, hey, like our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Hint, hint, do you want to do that again? And I think actually what they're thinking, they probably have some superstitious ideas wrapped around manna. Manna was this, you know, kind of magical elvish bread, and they wanted to see it again. They figured like, oh, if we have that, it's going to be like the best bread ever. It's going to be magical, give us superpowers. I don't know what's going on, but they, they just had this miracle of bread the day before. And they're like, I mean, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. All you did was take five loaves and feed 10,000 people. Give us the manna. Jesus is not going to fit into their box. He says to them, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread, but my father. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, Give us this bread always. We want this bread from heaven that gives life. And then Jesus, of course, says that very challenging statement, especially to them in their ears, 
understanding the exodus, understanding manna, understanding the nature of God and the way he was understood in the Old Testament, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, verse 35. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Now, bread in the ancient world is more important than bread is today. In much of the developing world, and especially in that ancient culture, in ancient cultures, bread was the sustaining thing you ate every day. You pretty much never had meat unless there was some major celebration. And then other things like vegetables would have been seasonal. You didn't just import your oranges from you know, Morocco or Chile in the off-season. And so you had what you had, but bread was there day in and day out. It was the core sustenance of what you ate. So in a sense, bread also meant food at all. Okay, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. The thing that sustains you is what he's talking about. Bread also had the same sort of way that we think about it today, the breaking of bread together is like you're eating with somebody else. But in that ancient culture, to eat with somebody else was covenantal and relational. You ate with somebody to say, we are partners, we're in this together, we are relatives, we are, we are covenantally linked one to another. So bread was all the things that sustained you, it was your relational core, and it was, it was one of these words that could be interchanged in phrasing in that ancient world with life itself. This is, this is a way of saying like my very being or sustenance. Bread could actually mean that, almost like you know, there was a time 40 years ago, 50 years ago, maybe 80, when the word bread meant money. You know, it's kind of, you knew that it wasn't actually bread that you had in your, in your pocket, but it was sort of because bread paid, or money paid for the bread that you ate. So life and bread were put together. So here is Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. He's talking about the thing that you need to survive. All of your relational core is built around it. The very source of you is me. And of course, in our modern ear, the idea of bread as food, just something you eat, which is what Jesus is talking about, is the recognition that food is something we go to for nourishment, right? Like you're, you need food, bread, to grow, to have energy, so your body doesn't break down. When we eat something like bread or food, it satisfies us. So it's nourishing their satisfaction, the filling that you feel like after church today when you go get lunch, you're full. And sometimes, depending on who's cooking, it can even be enjoyable. So food can be nourishing, satisfying, and enjoyable. Not always all of those. Jesus is saying, okay, yes, hold all of this in what I'm saying about who I am. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And the word that he uses there is the Greek word zoe, not bios, biology. And when John in particular cites the word zoe, which he does time and again, he's talking about the difference between existence and thriving. So you can be alive, but not enjoying life to the full. To simply exist is not a great thing, right? You know, a celery stalk exists. You want more than being a celery stalk in life. You want life. You want zoe. You want thriving. 
with meaning and purpose, an understanding of who you are, why you're here, and where it's all going. You want joy. You want hope. You want zoe. And on top of that, as Jesus says, in me you have eternal life. And John, the way he uses eternal life is not just something in the distance. It's basically the life that we are intended to have with God in eternity is available for us now. That's why he says he has eternal life. Jesus says in these phrases here, has already. You can partake of the life to the full that God has in store for you in part now. Maybe not in full, but in part. Foreshadowing the eternity that is to come. Eternal life in the way that Jesus is talking about, the way that John cites it, is not just something for a hundred years from now or two million years from now. It is for now. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And then he goes on to say in verse 47 to 51 and explaining it to everyone, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus says, I am the source of true life, eternal life. Feed on me and you will find life. Feed on him. Your nourishment and strength each day is found in Christ. He is the one we are to go to to satisfy us. He is the only meal that will give us true joy. Every human being who's ever existed and thought a little bit more about the whole purpose of life is built in with an emptiness of soul, an emptiness of heart, longing for identity, for meaning and purpose, for joy and hope and peace. That hunger is something we're constantly trying to deal with. In our modern age, that, that hunger, that soul hunger that's in every person, we tend to react in a couple of ways. One is we numb it, like, oh, if I, if I can just, you know, not have to think about it, could we ignore it, can go to alcohol or porn or social media or Netflix or TikTok, just ignore and numb, or we try to fill that hole on our own. And that's when we go to other bread, bread that we find or bake on our own, something to fill that, that void in us of meaning, of identity, of freedom. The bread might be a better you, just striving to be a better person, the better self that you're meant to be with your body or your intellect or your morals. We fill that emptiness with other people, looking for friendships or romance or sex or a perfect marriage to give us what our soul is longing for. Or we try stuff, entertainment, trips, the perfect house, the perfect lifestyle, that will fill us. Or even religion, you know? If I, if I kind of follow these rules, then I've got meaning and purpose. 
Jesus is trying to say, stop eating other bread. And then think that you're spiritually going to be filled. The manna was meant to be eaten daily, and if you didn't, if you hoarded it, the next day it was filled with maggots and stench. Jesus is saying, everything else you feed on in your life will eventually rot. It will not sustain you. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity was talking about our longing for heaven and the way that we fill it in other ways. I'm going to read this longer section that he wrote because he tends to have a slightly better way with words. Most people, if they had really learned to look in their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. The longing which arises in us when we first fall in love, or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. I'm not speaking of what would be ordinarily called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. I think everyone knows what I mean. The spouse may be a good spouse, and the hotels and scenery may have been excellent, and chemistry may be a very interesting job, but something has evaded us. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing, if that is so. If that is so, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. Look, it's okay to try to be a better you. It's okay to invest in relationships and strive for success. It's okay to enjoy a vacation. But those things are meant to point you to something else. They were never meant to fill the void. Only Jesus can fill the emptiness and longing. And Jesus says, come feed on me. Feed on me. You know, we are an anxious age. We're filled with a lot of anxiety, and a global pandemic for two years has not helped that. Nor has that little supercomputer inside of your pocket. These things are not helping us with our anxieties, our worries, our fears. In my own experience, worry and fear, which all of us have at some points about different things, worry and fear for me is like a present fixation on a future hopeless situation. So I'm presently thinking about something possibly happening or not happening in the future that causes me fear or worry, right? That could be health or money or a member of your family or your career. But one of the things I want us to see that's implicit in what Jesus is saying by calling himself the bread of life is the dailiness of what he's inviting us into. Jesus is not saying, come to me, believe in me, and your life's going to be easy. Instead, the wording that's used, all the imperatives, feed on me, drink my blood, believe in me, 
all of these are in the present continuous, meaning they don't just happen once. They're what we're doing ongoing all the time. That's why Jesus prayed the prayer in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And he's citing manna as a, as a shadow of the, the fulfillment that he is. Manna was something you had to collect daily, feed daily. It wasn't, oh, I've got some manna, and now I'm good for the next 40 years. It wasn't you ate it and you were never hungry again. You ate it, and the next day you did the same thing in faithfulness, trusting God that it would show up again the next day. Daily bread is implied in there. You know, in AA circles, alcoholics would never start, they, they will tell you, don't start your, your road to sobriety saying, how am I going to make it 10 years sober? You actually say, how am I going to make it today? Today and be sober. And in the same way, we need to realize our need for Christ daily. Daily come to him in prayer, in scripture, in song, in sermon, in small group, in conversation, in quiet reflection, in listening, in daily office, in podcast, in devotional book, in gathering as the church in person to come to the table, to sing songs together, to be refreshed and encouraged. And it's not that one of these meals is going to be the most amazing meal, but over the course of a lifetime, eating well feeds your soul. You will not find an old saint a man or woman that you look at and you're like, oh, I want to be like that person when I'm 80. You will not find one of them that did not cultivate a daily relationship with God, a weekly rhythm filled with habits of pursuing and feeding on the Lord in all sorts of ways and recognizing that it's not just one-time events or experiences that God shows up and blasts you with his presence. It is the daily faithfulness of seeking him and casting your cares and worries and fears on him today and then doing it again tomorrow. That's what faith looks like. It may not have a feeling for you, but it does look like daily faithfulness and feeding on him again and again. Jesus says in verse 35, whoever, I'm the bread of life, who feeds on me, drinks my, I will not be hungry, will never be thirsty. He's talking about our spiritual zoe life. Not that you're, you become a Christian, you're not going to want a cheeseburger later today. You will. But to the extent that I look to Jesus each day, I've found that it is true that I am not hungry. Otherwise, if I'm not looking to Jesus, I worry. I fear for the future of all these things, whatever the worries are in my head in that moment, I think about them. And in those moments of worry and thinking about a future thing that I cannot control, I'm not seeking my zoe in him. I'm seeking it in the outcome of something I'm worried about or something I want to control and I'm afraid I can't. Or I look at things that I want, circumstances that I want in life, and I, and I turn to them to fill me. But at the extent that I go to Jesus, I can live with successes and not need them, I can face losses without being crushed. All right, I'm going to skip some stuff here because otherwise we're going to be here for another hour. Is that an encouraging laugh? Keep going. <laughs> Quickly to say, 
Let me just read what Jesus says, and, and we'll almost end on that. Well, now we won't. Jesus is pushing them, right? He's pushing them with who he is and how they're supposed to depend on him and come to him. And then in verse 53 to 56, he takes it a step further. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. All right, that just got weird. I am the bread of life. Okay, we're good. Now, chew on my flesh and drink my blood. What is he talking about? Of course, he's pressing the metaphor home a little bit further. If you come from a Baptist, non-denominational background, you're like, oh yeah, it's all metaphor. If you come from a Catholic, liturgical background, you're like, it's talking about the Lord's Supper. Let me just say, in some things like this, it's okay to have mystery. It's okay to not have it all figured out. It's one of the reasons why I'm Anglican. But Jesus is very clearly pointing to himself as the source of all that we need. And in his body and in his blood, he's pointing to the cross, saying you need to come to understand that is my body broken and my blood poured out for you that is your only hope in life. Go back to that cross, my grace and mercy and humility and love for you in spite of your sin again and again and again. I am the only source. And of course, in all of this, it becomes a little too much for many of the disciples. We read in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Verse 66, after this, many disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. That's what some of them did. They left because it was too hard to hear what he was saying and what he was claiming. The claims of Christ are hard for us today, too. It's no different. You know, there's a common thing, or it's not uncommon nowadays, for people to re-examine their faith and push away from it. There's a literary and philosophical term called deconstruction that's all the rage for the under 40 crowd. And many of you have probably stepped into it as well. It basically means to pull apart your belief system and try to rebuild it again. Oftentimes, though, people don't rebuild it again. They will deconstruct their faith that they grew up with or have had for 10 years and stop following Christ because they realize it's just they, they're not down with that anymore. And there are reasons to do this. I mean, look, Christianity has a lot of negative associations, and it's currently not acceptable teaching. Jesus isn't in anymore. It's not an easy thing to buy into the things that Jesus seems to be claiming. And some people will kind of pull apart their faith, deconstruct it, because they've had bad church experiences. These are very real things because of uh, the way the church has dealt with uh, politics or race or covering up sexual abuse scandals. And so you have to step back and say, can I even trust this God because of the church that I've been a part of? 
Others will deconstruct their faith because they realize they want freedom to do what they want. What Jesus, what Christianity calls sin, culture doesn't, and they'd rather listen to that. And others do it because it's hard to follow Christ. You will not fit in. Increasingly, you will not fit in. You're going to be like the, the people who kept following Jesus after he said, chew on my flesh, drink my blood. Like, those people are weird. There is a place, hear me out, there is a place to examine what you believe, to think about why you believe it, and try to build solid beliefs that are not just based on your culture's understanding, the church you grew up in. You should question me. You should question your church of origin. You do need to question these things and ask yourself, why do I believe this? And doubt does not mean you've rejected God. Doubt can mean you're actually thinking. And that's what I want you to do. I want us to be Christians who cultivate a fully integrated theology, a worldview that is shaped by Jesus, that shapes our politics, that shapes what we do with our money, what we do with our body, what we do with our relationships, how we view ourselves and our priorities in this world. Christ and Christ alone should be shaping those things. And that takes work to get there, to think that through, and it might mean pulling off or deconstructing some things. But at the root of much of deconstructing of faith in our modern age is a desire for autonomy, autonomy from God. And it's often in phrases, if you follow people on Twitter who are deconstructing their faith, it's they say, my faith, my faith, it's mine. What about you guys, Jesus says to the disciples? Peter answers in verse 68 and 69, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Honestly, I think that's it right there. That's the summation of where we are and what you need to decide, what I need to decide each and every day. Who has the words of eternal life? Where are you going to go? Look, I've looked at the other religions, and for intellectual integrity, there's Christianity and there's atheism. And one of those is a very dark place. The one who has the words of eternal life is the one who is the bread of life. And Jesus is the only food to fill the hunger for your soul and mine. Let's pray. God, we live in a confusing age some of the things you say are hard to hear. Lead us to see you as the Christ, if you are. Help us to walk in that daily trust, to be filled by you, to feed on our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving in the one who is the bread of life, in whose name we pray. Amen.